Happy Monday to you. Welcome to NSN Daily. Alex Margulies, Chris Murray, Anthony Resnick, directing behind the scenes. I'm Brian Samudio. Uh, let's start things off with a good friend of ours and a large pillar in our community, and at Eric Edelstein, the president of the Reno Aces and Reno 1868 FC. I'm still going to say that, but because uh, I'm not letting this go easily, Eric. This is a this is a tough pill for a lot of us to swallow, and I'm sure it means so much to you. The announcement was made on Friday, uh, ceasing operations. Has this really kind of sunk in that you that this has happened? Yeah, I think it. it yeah, it's, it's. I think it's sunk in. I think we know it's real. Um, and I don't know, like just still not. I don't know. Just it's still kind of numbing um, to know that you know we're not going to talk about who the best players on the board are this week, and you know we're not going to play around with. Uh, um, you know, who, when do the options expire and who can we pick up? And, you know, there's just, there, there's just so many, um, so many little daily parts of, of life that, that this club brought into, into the world that, that just kind of stop. And so it's just been a weird, uh, it's been weird. It was weird though, to also still tune into the Minnesota United match last night, um, to see if, if, if any of our three guys, got in and sort of jump off the couch when I saw Foster get up and, and get introduced into the game. So, um, you know, it's a weird feeling knowing we're not going forward, but at the same time, you know, still going to, you know, cheer like crazy for all the guys that have come through and, uh, you know, help make the club what they were. When the club was created a half decade ago, it was really your brainchild and a lot of your work that made it a possibility. And I'm sure it was exceptionally uh, painful for you as a result just walk the fans through why this decision was made, why you guys did have to cease operations and, and regroup and, and potentially rebuild in a couple of years from now. You know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of factors that, that go into it. Um, the, we, we, I was really excited to get in, in 2015. Um, yeah, I can remember the pitch of, you know, soccer's coming and this, this is real. And I think we have an opportunity to sort of get in before, uh, the rest of the, the country maybe figures out that second division soccer is a real thing. And we did, and we got in and, uh, and almost immediately the league, um, you know, was very, very much pushing for, for soccer specific stadiums. Um, you know, we, we knew that was going to be something we needed to look at in the future. Um, it's something that we talked about um, loosely over the last couple years and knew that it was an eventuality that we'd need to get there. Um, the, the league standards continue to grow. The, the expectations continue to grow. We built a locker room. Um, you know, we're going to need to build a training field. There's just a significant amount of investment that was going to be needed. And, and then we just bump up against COVID and just a, a harsh reality that the amount of investment on top of what we believe is going to be, you know, virtually two years of, of deeply interrupted um, seasons uh, just made it kind of untenable and, and it all just sort of converged in a decision that, that we felt like it was the right time to, to let go. Eric, uh, you said something last week, you, you had, you held a kind of a zoom press conference and I wanted you to, to kind of get a chance to tell this to our viewers, but you know, we talk about this on this, on this show too. I mean, Reno is not the easiest sports town necessarily because there is a lot going on and, and, unless you're playing really, really good. I mean, it just, there's, it doesn't seem like a lot of people are showing up for a lot of sporting events. And in our, you know, town's history, there have been a lot of 
uh, teams that have gone under. You know, you've seen the Reno Silver Sox kind of come and go as a minor league baseball team. You've seen a minor league basketball team with the Reno Bighorns kind of come and go. And and you were very uh, pointed to kind of say, I, you don't want Reno 1868 to get lumped in with all these other franchises that have come to town and failed. And it really isn't fair to kind of say that this was a failure of Reno 1860, or this is an indictment against the town of Reno and their support of minor league teams. This is really, if COVID didn't happen, this wasn't going to happen right now. And I think that's important to point out. A hundred percent of all the, all the challenges that I can, I can list out. None of them would have killed us without COVID. Um, they're, they're just, it just wouldn't happen. Could it have eventually caught up to us down the road? Maybe. Um, but there's no way we're having this conversation in 2020 without COVID. And um, I, it's kind of surprising to me that that word, the first that, that has come out because of this exact reason. Uh, I do think there will be others, um, not necessarily saying any league or sport or anything like that. It just feels like it's going to be difficult for second division sports in America to be able to recover quickly from all this. Um, but also, you know, I also wanted to make it a point to, to point out, you know, as I talk to my, my friends across the country in sports, it, you know, lots of people reference the amount of teams that have failed in all of their communities. And there's a reality that minor league second division sports, um, they do have a high failure rate. Um, I think minor league baseball has been such an outlier in the consistency um, that it's brought to communities that have had it, that we tend to forget about um, you know, the IHL, the, uh, the CBA, um, you know, there have been lots of precursors, uh, the NASL, um, lots of precursors to the current environment that we're in. Um, and again, I don't, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why teams depart, but um, I just, I've always found it to be an unfair criticism of Northern Nevada um, that, that have been told to me that we're maybe not a sports town. Um, I do think we're a sports town. I think every town's a sports town. If you provide them the right venue, the right facilities, the right entertainment, uh, if you price it right, you take good care of your fans. I think they all can become sports towns. And, uh, and we've seen that with the success of the Aces and um, really, you know, trying to not cry in my beer too long um, because we do have a lot of work uh, to do to make sure that the Aces um, recover strong and, and are ready for Northern Nevada next spring. Let's transition right into that, Eric. Uh, Eric Edelstein, president of, of the Reno Aces. Um, you you made it very, very clear that, uh, and I got a bunch of messages and texts and emails over the weekend about people asking, what is this going to do for the Aces? Well, the Aces are a completely different monster, completely different beast. Um, and I, I'll let you basically tell our viewers how committed you are that the Reno Aces will continue on. No, 100%. I, I have to be careful how I structure this because I, I don't want it to be misconstrued. But the Reno Aces are the reason that Greater Nevada Field was built. And they are the main objective at Greater Nevada Field. And if someone wants to criticize the failure of 1868 because of that, perhaps they would have a right. Um, Reno 1868 wouldn't have existed without the Aces in Greater Nevada Field. But the Reno Aces have been and always will be the primary focus at Greater Nevada Field. And so um, our letting go of soccer um, in some ways is a double down on the future of the Reno Aces and making sure that 
everyone's head is squarely focused on a really big challenge, which is coming out of COVID strongly and being prepared to welcome fans back safely um, in a way that they can have you know, strong confidence in the experience. So the, the long-term future um, of the Reno Aces and Greater Nevada Field is, is very firm. We have an agreement with the city through 2043 um, and, uh, and we have every intention of, uh, of being here to see that and beyond. Do you see a possibility that soccer would return in a few years once we get through this period? And I guess what would be required uh, to potentially have a rebirth of a soccer team in this area? You know, soccer is still in such a, such a young sport when you really look at it compared to the others in America. And it, it's fledgled a little bit or fledgling a little bit. Um, there have been leagues come and go. Um, you know, the USL has certainly um, been the most successful uh, this USL championship specifically, you know, they're, they're launching league one as well. Uh, I think there are definitely going to be opportunities. Uh, what level, um, which league, um, all of that is going to play out over time. Um, and I think that, you know, it is going to be a good time to sort of let the dust settle after COVID to see um, what the future looks like um, for soccer. Um, but, but soccer is a sport in America, I don't think is going away anytime soon. Um, and, uh, and I believe in it as much today as I did, you know, in 2015 when we started this. Eric, can we take a look back and just talk about what this team accomplished? I mean, you guys finished out this last year, number one out of 35 teams in the smallest media market, the smallest population size city in 35 teams. Yet for four consecutive years, you guys made the postseason. You finish in first place, you finish in second place, you finish in third place in your Western Conference against teams that bluntly have spent three, maybe four times as much money on players as you guys have. How proud are you of just the entire organization from Ian Russell, the partnership with the Earthquakes, your staff, all these different people, Chris Melanab, his, you know, Ian's assistants, this entire collective unit that put together an impressive product on the field in terms of how you guys competed as such a small market compared to the rest of the league. I, that will be the part, and, and I've got a deck that, um, that we built, you know, sort of highlight to the earthquakes exactly sort of how the model was built and, and why we think it achieved success. And at some point, I'm going to publish that because uh, there's no pride of authorship. There's nothing proprietary. Um, I am dumbfounded that these partnerships have not um, found their way into other MLS USL or MLS other league um, situations. Um, it was the absolute perfect set of circumstances um, to, to bring players in who had something to prove and give them a chance to prove it and then send them off um, to the next level. Um, I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that no, uh, no USL team had more alumni dress up this weekend in MLS matches um, than Reno did. Um, whether it's, it's Matt LaGrasa in, in Nashville, Danny Masofsky at LAFC, the three guys that made it to Minnesota, or all the Quakes players um, that got time here. The model was, um, it was right. Um, it was executed unbelievably um, by the, the, everybody involved. Um, Ian Russell deserves an unbelievable amount of credit um, for his eye for talent, um, his ability to coach talent and bring it up and advance it. Um, and, uh, and his willingness to buy in all the way into, and for fans that don't understand soccer, don't know it, even I didn't when I, we started, Ian took on a whole new system 
because of the affiliation with the Quakes this year, a system he had never played in, never coached in, um, and had to learn from scratch. And he delivered the best season yet um, as a coach. So, I mean, Ian Russell should be an MLS. He should be a next level coach. Um, he is he, he is an absolute star and deserves an unending amount of credit for the, the on-field product that you've seen here in Reno. Eric Edelstein, the president of the Reno Aces and Reno 1868 FC. Eric, we appreciate your time and uh, best of luck. I want to see the guys out on the diamond in the spring. Uh, can't wait. Can't wait to see it. We'll be back here with the Aces soon enough. Well, much more coming up here on NSN Daily. Your Wolfpack update is coming up after the break. This Wolfpack update is brought to you by Renown Health. Welcome back to NSN Daily. It is Monday. It means a Wolfpack update brought to you by Renown. Plenty to talk about. Uh, I mean, you're going to be playing the University of New Mexico in Las Vegas on the road. That's going to be interesting next uh, next Saturday. Uh, but uh, let's start with Brandon Tolson, some uh, some special teams accolades from the Mountain West Conference. Chris, pretty cool. Yeah, he was named the Mountain West uh, Special Teams Player of the Week. You could have made the case for Carson Strong to be the Offensive Player of the Week, but that went to Ronnie Rivers of Fresno State running back, scored four touchdowns. But uh, it's easy to take his excellence for granted. This is his fourth honor from the Mountain West in their weekly awards, uh, and he's only a, a sophomore into his third game. Um, so he's, he's really been a terrific player, and his, uh, he's made 87% of his field goals during his career. That's the fifth best among active kickers. He was two for two in this game. He didn't do anything too crazy. Uh, both the field goals were 36 uh, yards or under, um, but he's been perfect this season, six out of six. He's made 12 straight uh, dating back to last year. So it's great when you could just run a kicker out there and you feel like you got three points, no matter you know how long it is. And that's the feeling that Jay Norvell has been able to have. Obviously the Wolfpack playing some blowouts, but if the games get closer, he's going to feel super comfortable sending Brandon Talton out there to win a game, which he did for Nevada twice last season. We've said it before, Alex, is that you really only notice a kicker, unfortunately, unless they do something spectacular or they screw up. That's the, the curse of special teams. But with Tolton, I put Tolton right up there with Carson Strong, with Don Peterson, with Toa Tawa, Romeo Dubs. Those guys, keep them off the COVID shelf. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where if you have to play a game without Brandon Tolton and late in the game, suddenly you need a field goal. I mean, he's, he's a vital weapon. Yeah, I mean, how about Nevada's special teams, period? Uh, there, there was a tweet I saw yesterday from uh, Coach Sheffield uh, responding to Kirk Herbstreet. I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but Kirk Herbstreet, uh, analyst at ESPN, was lauding Nevada and their, and their offense. And Carson Strong, he's been so impressed with what he's seen so far. And, and Coach Sheff said, hey, don't forget about our boys on special teams because we have the number one net punting team in the country. So you're talking about right now Nevada being number one in the nation when it comes to punting. And now you've got, of course, Brandon Talton, who has been just nails uh, as a kicker since he stepped onto the scene as a true freshman and had that amazing moment against Purdue last year and got rewarded with the scholarship. And, and he's been consistent ever since. And as you guys mentioned, perfect this year. So when you look at Nevada and their weapons, you have to include their special teams weapons. When you talk about kicking game and you talk about their punting game, really taking their, their team to the next level this year. So Nevada sits at 3-0 going into week four against New Mexico. That game will be played at Sam Boyd Stadium on Saturday. Uh, Chris, when it came to votes, slowly but surely, Nevada's starting to maybe get a little national attention. 
Yeah, a little bit. I mean, they still don't have a ton of traction, but they are moving forward. They got five uh, votes in the coaches poll uh, over the weekend. That's the most in the Mountain West. Uh, San Jose State has the second most. If you would have told me that Nevada and San Jose State, the only two undefeated teams in the Mountain West three weeks in, I probably wouldn't have believed you, but that's where we are. And they got their first vote in the AP Top 25. Uh, writer for the uh, Spokane newspaper gave them a 25th place vote. So they've got a ways to go. Um, but I think if they get to 6-0, and that's probably the mark that breaks them through. But it, it really does depend on what happens with the rest of the nation. This isn't, you know, done in a bubble. This is done uh, with other teams playing games. And if other teams are playing well, it's harder to get through. If other teams are losing, then it's easier. But um, the Wolfpack certainly put itself uh, on that uh, that national landmark kind of, uh, you know, uh, curb street, as Alex mentioned. I had a tweet about them. Uh, Pete Thamel from Yahoo wrote a bit of a, a little piece of an article on them. So, uh, you know, Jay Norvell starting to get his due with this offense. And I think uh, as a voter myself, I think the only thing you look for is, um, can we get a little bit more harder of a schedule? Now, that's not Nevada's fault. They just play who they play. Um, but up to this point, obviously, it's been a little bit weaker, and they've certainly taken care of business. Just not having that non-conference season where they would have went and played a team like Arkansas out of the SEC, I think it's a little bit harder to measure them against these Power 5 teams that are weekly playing against some of the best teams in the nation. So um, they're certainly getting some traction, and I think uh, 6-0 would be the mark that I would probably put them in, maybe 5-0 and against San Diego State in a couple weeks. But um, they're doing what they need to do on the field. Now it's just really up to the rest of the teams that they play to put up some big wins. So those victories that Nevada's putting up looks even stronger. I think it's 5-0. and I think it's 5-0 and with San Diego State to see them with a chance to crack the top 25. Got a couple of direct messages this morning from boosters going, why aren't they getting more national respect? Well, look at who they played. And that's not Nevada's fault. Alex, I mean, and it's not going to help them this week against New Mexico, a team that, that has struggled as well. Yeah, no, they're not going to get any any favors there. And, and even now, I mean, you look at that San Diego State game, the, the narrative was a little bit different when it was two teams that were undefeated. So maybe True. that even kind of uh, dilutes it just a little bit, not to say Nevada is just going to go in 4-0 and so is San Diego State. I mean, getting ahead of ourselves. But yeah, I mean, you're right. New Mexico has really had a tough time here. And and how could you blame them? I mean, they're, they're barely able to, to practice right now and, and they're not able to practice even in their home city. Uh, so they've been on the road constantly. They've been spending time in Vegas. They're not going to be home this weekend. It's going to be at Sam Boyd Field, Sam Boyd Stadium down in Las Vegas. So it's really difficult for them to get any sort of uh, continuity, any sort of momentum. And so if you're Nevada, you really expect to have a very similar result as you had against Utah State. Uh, and, and uh, you know, hopefully they, they go out there and, and, you know, maybe take what they learned a little bit from that first quarter against Utah State, because I don't think Nevada yet has played four good quarters of football. I think we've seen incredible stretches of football by this team. But in each of their first three games, we've seen a quarter, maybe a quarter and a half when they have not looked very great. Uh, you know, offense has disappeared and the defense, you know, is making mistakes. So I think, you know, as a team, they want to just continue to get better each and every week and, and finding ways to, okay, we had a little hole here. Let's figure this out. But that's a great problem to have at this point in the year. You're three and oh, and you're not, you're not certainly not complacent with where you are because there is room for growth with this team. And I think that's, what's exciting knowing the weapons they've got and knowing that there is room for improvement. Uh, I think leaves you to believe that this team is for real and, and really could make a run uh, at a Mountain West this year. Alex had a chance to catch up with uh, head coach Jay Norvell on this week's edition of Wolfpack All Access. Here's Coach Norvell talking about starting the season perfect at three zero. Um, you know, we 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 were not happy at all with the three losses that we had. You know, to Wyoming and UNLV and Utah State last year. We thought we didn't play as well as we could have. Um, and we really looked bad in a, in a couple of those games, Utah State, Wyoming. We just, we just didn't 
didn't do enough of the right things to, to be super competitive in those games. And so, you know, we were embarrassed by that and we wanted to correct it. And, you know, when we saw the schedule, we knew it was going to be challenging for us, especially early. And so, you know, uh, really just proud of how we responded. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we, we take a lot of pride in understanding that every game's different. Um, the challenges of the games are different. And uh, this, this week was the same thing, you know, playing in a short week, um, having to prepare differently to compact, you know, a whole weeks of practice in a couple of days. And they, they challenged us in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, we saw some things that were quite a bit different than they've shown on film. And we started a little bit slow. Um, you know, we had a safety early and bad field position. Um, got got down, uh, but but to be able to respond after being you know down nine points, um, scored thirty you know thirty whatever thirty four straight points on them without them responding, I was th I think is real testament to how far our guys have come and and um, um, you know we there's a lot of things that happen in this game that we'll learn from that'll really help us the rest of the year. Of course, you want to see more from Wolfpack All Access, just go to our website. That's NevadaSportsNet.com. It airs every single Sunday night on News 4, our sister station, right after uh, Sunday night football and then at 10 p.m. right here on Nevada Sportsnet. Uh, COVID has reached out and bitten another couple of teams here in the Mountain West. Uh, Air Force Academy has a, an outbreak of COVID. And uh, now the Falcons and the Cowboys of Wyoming will not be able to play. Alex, we saw this coming when it was – you got eight weeks to play eight games. And – I don't want to say this is good for Nevada, but anytime another team can't play, you know, you're able to gain a game. You get the six, six games this year. I think you ought to be counting your blessings. Yeah. I think, I don't think the, that the majority of teams in this league are going to get it, going to get eight full games this year. And I think if you're the Wolfpack, you go week by week and you hope you get as many as you can, because I think the reality is you're probably going to get hit by this one way or another, whether it's your team or whether it's the other team that you're playing I think the odds are over this eight game season, every single team in the Mountain West is going to get shut down uh, from a game uh, one way or the other at some point. And so, you know, these two teams have to deal with that. And, and uh, you know, it is what it is. It, it is yeah. kind of tough that it is this eight week deal and there's no chance for a makeup or to move things around. Um, but certainly disappointed, you know, to see that that's happening. And, and uh, but, you know, nothing is surprising at this point. Chris, we're slowly marching toward that nightmare that you predicted, I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago, where it was, what happens if we get to the end of the year and you got a team that's six and two, and then somebody else is out of five and one, or somebody is, uh, what do you do? I mean, I know we're going to go top two teams, but what if you have teams that just are balanced out like that and you have to make a decision? Yeah, I mean, the Mountain West has a pretty long uh, tiebreaker scenario situation. You actually have to play a minimum number of games even to be considered to play. So if you're a team like Air Force, which is now missing its second straight game after it didn't play Army, obviously that's a non-conference game. But if that continues, um, they might not even be eligible to play in that game. You basically have to play about 75% of the games that you were scheduled, depending upon what happens with other teams. So um, they're just going to go by winning percentage. And Nevada's done a really good job. We've seen Boise State have to play their last two games without their starting quarterback. Now, they haven't commented on why he hasn't traveled with the team. But uh, let's put the two together. It's pretty obvious what's going on there. So, um, you know, it, as much discipline as it takes on the field to execute, it takes that off the field. In Nevada, you know, they've lost a couple of players here and there. But outside of Toa Tawa not playing in week one, they have been pretty smooth 
smooth sailing through this. And that is a credit to what they're doing off the field. It's not luck. It's not that you just avoid COVID-19 by luck. It's you're doing the right things off the field. Your testing is good. Uh, your doctors are doing a good job. So, um, yeah, it's like Alex said, I mean, at this point now we know all these teams aren't playing eight games. We've already had Colorado State, New Mexico, Wyoming and Air Force miss a game. So you have uh, one third of your teams already missing a conference game. And, uh, you know, Nevada is on the right track in terms of what they're doing on the field, but certainly off the field, they're doing a great job as well, limiting their exposure and their positive cases. And, and Nevada's doing it in an environment where COVID is really starting to wake back up. I mean, when I saw the numbers, I get these emails every day because I used to be, you know, a news anchor back in, back in the day. And I still get these newsroom emails and they're just, they're depressing sometimes. On Saturday, 469 new cases of COVID-19 in Washoe County. That's almost quadruple what the average had been. So Nevada, to be able to move forward like this, you're seeing discipline out of their players, discipline out of their coaches, and a great job by their staff. So uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully moving forward, we don't see see this uh, see this really bite the Wolfpack. That's your Wolfpack update brought to you by Renown. Coming up next after the break, the Raiders beat the Chargers in dramatic fashion at the end. It took a review to give the silver and black the victory. Shannon Kelly will join us with our Raiders recap after the break. Big NFL weekend. I'll start it off with your Raider recap brought to you by the Rail City Alehouse. That's why we always call on our Raider reporter, Shannon Kelly. Uh, Shannon, the end of this game was insane. I mean, it took a review and then, I mean, just back and forth. Uh, it was a fun football game. Yeah, this one was a lot of fun to watch. And I mean, this was one, a tale of two halves. And two, this is why you play four quarters of football, completely four quarters of football, because that really did come down to the final second there when corner Isaiah Johnson was on the Chargers offensive uh, player there. And just for him to be able to get that play and yeah, for the Chargers to think that they had that touchdown at the end and for them, you know, they're thinking, Hey, we just won this on the very last second. But um, Derek Carr, he said it, you know, this is why you play these games. And in that moment, you're just waiting to see what's going to happen. But this was a back and forth game, really. I mean, the Raiders started off slow and so did the Chargers. And then things kind of started to unravel for Las Vegas at the end of the first half. But they came out firing really in the third quarter. I mean, Derek Carr threw for about a hundred yards just in the third quarter alone to really get things going. And that was kind of what propelled them. But you also have to tip your hat too to the Chargers and to Justin Herbert in this one, because he played a very good game. I mean, he's been placed in this situation this year after their starting quarterback uh, went out with an injury there in week one. And then for him to be able to come out and do what he's done so far, I mean, they've lost almost all of their games by a possession or less. So even though their record doesn't show it, they've been um, nailed, they've been at the end of all of these games and things could have gone either way for them. All right, let's hear from the Raiders after their 31-26 victory over the Chargers. Oh, we've won four out of five, four games on the road. Uh, we, we, we're missing both our tackles. You know, we lost our fullback. Uh, we're missing just several defensive backs came out of the game. Uh, the Chargers are playing for their life. They're a good, talented team. And, and just uh, to summarize it, we're happy to win. We're just thrilled to win, and especially a game like that. Shows a lot of character. I love, I love having all our guys out there. I love putting up big numbers and all that kind of stuff. But I've done, I've done those things. Um, been to the Pro Bowl, done that. It's all cool. It's fun for you know people to pat your back. But none of that stuff matters unless you win. You know what I'm saying? I think the thing that is so exciting to me is that We've won games where we've had to throw it for 300 yards. We've won games where we've had to rush it for 200 yards. Like, and it is fun, man. You know, this is a fun group because 
depending on what we're seeing and depending on the adjustments, we can win in a lot of different ways. And really proud um, of the guys that have stepped up. Uh, really proud of our coaching staff uh, for getting those guys ready. You know, that's, you know, sometimes when the starters get all the reps, the other guys are forgotten about during a game week. But not, not here. I mean, everyone is coached as if they're a starter, and uh, we've needed it, obviously. So it's been cool. I saw a little bobble. I saw him hit the ground, and you see him, the referees talking about it. So then you're like, well, either way, this is going to get reviewed. You know, that's what's going through my head. You know, and obviously they're char the Chargers team. They run on the field, rightfully so. They think the game's over, uh, you know, on the last play. Um, and then <laughs> they go review it, and then all of our guys rush the field and go nuts. And uh, uh, it's an emotional roller coaster. I try my best to stay here. Now it goes like this here and there. Uh, uh, we run as clean on some things today, so maybe I got a little hot, you know, uh, on some things. But whenever we pull something out like that, it's so good for the team. Like, just on the bus, when you get on the airplane, the joy, the excitement, the confidence it gives certain guys, um, you know, it, it, a play like that can change a young man's career, you know, um, you know, one way or the other. And hopefully this catapults Isaiah, and I hope that it just gives him more and more confidence that when the game's on the line, he, he knocked the ball out twice. Let's not forget, he didn't do it just the last play. He did the play before also. Raiders with an old uh, rivalry matchup coming up next for them against the Denver Broncos, and uh, yeah, that uh, that should be uh, that should be interesting as well. Uh, see, rooting for Malik Reed on the Denver side, but if you're a Raider fan, uh, you want Malik to to uh, stay away from Derek Carr. Uh, let's get to uh, your Bills, Chris. They beat the Seahawks 44-34. Your assessment? I mean, that's their best win of the season by far. It definitely puts them at a different level of potential ceiling when they go out there and beat a team that only had one loss and uh, MVP candidate and Russell Wilson. I was actually very interested in how the uh, the Bills came out and started that game. Uh, Josh Allen, the first 35 pa uh, plays, 31 were passes. So they really came out and attacked the team that doesn't rush the quarterback very well, got out to a nice lead and then salted it away. So as a Bills fan, uh, super, super happy. But, you know, it's a tough game for the Seahawks when you have to make that travel and play an early game. And Russell Wilson clearly didn't play his best. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not a quiet eight. No, it's a very loud eight. No, if you're on social media and you have any friends that are Steelers fans, Shannon, they're shouting it from the rooftops. Imagine not having your favorite team be eight and oh, got about 45 seconds left in the segment. Uh, the Steelers look like they are for real. Yeah, they do. They looked like they were firing on all cylinders there, but that was also another little bit of a close game. I mean, that one was coming down to the fourth quarter there and Steelers could have let that one go. I mean, the Cowboys, they've been pressed too as well with some injuries in the quarterback uh, position. So that's, that's hurt them, but the Steelers, they continue to roll as they head into next week. Yep. The Steelers will face uh, the Cincinnati Bengals and rookie quarterback Joe Burrow. Uh, next week at home so we'll see what happens there but uh, Pittsburgh 8-0 after coming back to beat the Cowboys 24 to 19 and yeah Dallas it has been just a nightmare season in Big D for Jerry Jones and the Cowboys coming up next year on NSN Daily we'll introduce you to Desmond Cambridge transfer for Nevada basketball Welcome back to NSN Daily Wolfpack men's basketball season and women's basketball season right around the corner so Chris introducing us to a lot of brand new faces on this team. And we'll go alphabetically through this. Uh, let's start off with Desmond Cambridge, talented transfer. The kid can score, Chris, maybe some instant offense here. Yeah, we'll be posting one player a day until the startup of the season. All these scholarship players will get a little profile. And we start with Dem uh, Desmond Cambridge. And yeah, I mean, he's a really, really good player. I mean, this is a guy who's averaged 17 points per game at the Division One level in the Ivy League at Brown, and he redshirted with the Wolfpack last year, six foot four shooting guard. Um, you know, it, the, the big question with him is the efficiency. So he doesn't score at a super efficient rate. He shot about 
37% from the field his last year at Brown, but he can certainly fill it up. And I think he, more than maybe anybody, is really helped with Wichita State transfer Grant Sherfield becoming eligible because now Desmond can just play on the wing. He could be sc uh, scoring first and doesn't have to really think as much about trying to get others involved and being like a lead guard where you are handling the ball a ton. So um, I think he's a really, really good player. I think he could be all Mountain West as early as this year. I consider him for my all Mountain West newcomer of the year vote. Uh, the preseason poll will be coming out Wednesday in the Mountain West. And I think beyond the scoring, this is a very, very talented defensive player as well. He's very long. Uh, you know, this guy who averaged more than a block and a half per game at Brown, more than the steal per game at Brown. So uh, he's a really versatile player. When you look at what Nevada's losing with Jalen Harris, Jazz Johnson, uh, Lindsey June, Nistre Zuzwa, those are four uh, guards who all won all conference honors last season. And Desmond was as good as any of them, uh, except for maybe Jalen in practice day in and day out when he was able to redshirt with the team. So uh, if you had to tell me or uh, ask me which player is going to lead Nevada in scoring this season, I would tell you Desmond Cambridge. I think he's going to be the Wolfpack's top scorer somewhere around 15 points per game. Yeah, when I saw that uh, Cambridge was coming in, Sherfield was, was going to be uh, eligible for this year. It's not stopping the scoring bleeding, but it's going to certainly help out, Alex, when you're trying to replace a guy like Jalen Harris. I mean, that's nearly impossible to do. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how this is going to play out because, as Chris said, you know, Desmond has gotten really high marks from practice and, and the way that he goes about his business and his just ability out there on the court. What I'm looking at that I'm curious to see is, you know, Nevada has had over the last few years guys that have transferred in from very similar positions. Most recently, you look at Nisrae Suzwa, who was at Bryant University, and he was phenomenal there. His first season at Nevada didn't translate. I mean, he really struggled and for whatever reason, never got it going. Last year, of course, he had a much improved senior season. Before that, even actually to Brown, uh, which is where Desmond Cambridge transferred from, you have Leland King, uh, who came from Brown. He came to Nevada under head coach Eric Musselman and, and really never uh, got it going in Nevada. So I, I don't think it would be fair to lump Desmond into the same category as those two, just because they came from similar levels of basketball coming and playing from the Ivy league. Uh, and that neither of them really jumped in and, and fit kind of uh, with the Wolfpack right away. But um, I think more you hear about, again, like I said, uh, what's going on at practice and, and the leadership and, and the type of player that Nevada is getting. So I'm excited to see what he can do. And it is, I'm curious to see, you know, does he kind of break that trend in a sense of guys that have come from these Ivy league levels to Nevada and not had, immediate success is Damon uh, Desmond a guy that can come in and give Nevada immediate success yeah I wonder how much Alex we're going to see uh, the difference in coaching you know coaching styles I mean Eric Musselman had a one and a half man bench and if you went out and you failed you didn't you had one bad night that might lock you in for a month on the bench Alford I think really has more of a developmental sort of thing here but Chris before we go to break um, when it comes to this jump up in talent level league level when it comes to these guys, how much do you think that affects it? Yeah, it's a legitimate thing. You've seen Nevada's transfers who have really thrived with the Wolfpack. It's guys who have come from the ACC, like the Martin Twins, or from the Missouri Valley Conference, like Marcus Marshall and Jordan Caroline. So it's definitely a significant jump up. I think the thing that helps Desmond more than anything is this is a very athletic, competitive guy. This is not a guy who went to the Ivy League because he didn't have the athleticism to play even high major basketball. He's a super good athlete. And if you ask anybody who's practiced against him, he's as competitive a player as Nevada's had in recent years. And that's saying a lot with the Martin Twins and Jordan Caroline and guys like that. So I think he'll be able to make the jump, but that's certainly something that you're going to have to watch. And I think that year of redshirting and being able to play against really good guards will help him because it told him, okay, where do I need to get better? If I'm playing against these great guards in practice, uh, you know, these are some of the best guards in the Mountain West. 
that informs him on where he has to improve heading into this season. So something to watch, but I think he'll be able to make the jump uh, maybe a little bit better than a guy like Leland King, who also came from the Ivy League. If you want to check out Chris's player profiles, just go to the website. That's NevadaSportsNet.com. Coming up after the break, I'm not. I'm surprised Alex isn't do, doing the happy dance right now because there's snow in the mountains. Mother Nature finally starting to deliver for us. I shouldn't get too excited about it yet, but we'll show you what happened up at school over the weekend. Next. Man, it got cold. The snow started coming down late, late Saturday night. I was, I'm standing outside in shorts and a t-shirt and wondering why I'm freezing, but I was loving every second of it. Alex, you're the skier of our group, man. I mean, did you get snow out at your place? Oh yeah, we got to probably a solid four, four, maybe five inches. Uh, got a good shovel in uh, Sunday morning. So it was nice to, to see the change in season. And, and uh, you know, it looks like that, uh, that really boosted us up in the mountains. And a lot of the area ski resorts feel like they're going to be able to open around Thanksgiving time. I think I even saw uh, Squaw Valley, Alpine Meadows. Now you got some video from them about uh, what happened up there this weekend, but they're planning on opening uh, the day before Thanksgiving. So uh, November 25th, uh, the lifts will start spinning at Squaw and Alpine. So, uh, you know, I always say if you can get a day of skiing in by Thanksgiving, like if I can get a day in like Thanksgiving day, like ski for a little bit, pop the turkey in, I'm usually happy with that starts the winter. It's usually kind of a good recipe for me. That makes it a happy honing right there. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks to Alex Pahalski and, and the folks up at uh, Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows for sending us the video. Uh, apparently, they've got 11 inches of snow up in the higher elevations. They are continuing their snowmaking. Chris, this isn't just good for our souls, folk, folks that want to get out. I got to just enjoy seeing the snow. It just It's changing. It was almost kind of refreshing. It kind of revitalized me a little bit. But economy-wise, these ski resorts need to be able to get people on the mountain and do it safely. Yeah, I think just seeing snow turns everybody into a kid. It makes everybody happy. It's only made my uh, my dog that's sitting over there, my St. Bernard, very happy to get back into her natural train. But definitely, I mean, our biggest uh, thing in the winter, tourism-wise, is getting people up to the mountains and coming through the Reno Tahoe International Airport. Now, um, you know, how safe is that to do and how much will they be able to do that during our current pandemic is obviously a question. But uh, I know the ski resorts are taking a lot of steps to stay as safe as possible. And hopefully, if you are traveling, you're able to do it in the safest possible measure. I mean, obviously the end of last year was very much impacted by the uh, start of the pandemic. And that's when we were really starting to get some good snow. So hopefully they're able to rebound and they're able to have people up there safely. And uh, I do have a question for Alex. So you go skiing on Thanksgiving. Um, mm -hmm. I, I talked to Lucas Weber. He and his family used to always go on Christmas day because no, or not Super Bowl day because yep, yep. Up there and they didn't really care about football, which is weird because he went on to be a very good player for the Wolfpack. <laughs> um, is, is it busy on days like Thanksgiving or is that a good day to go because everybody's staying at home? You know, I would say not really like Thanksgiving day. I can't, I can't remember the last time I went, but usually it's not bad. And usually what I'll do is I'll go really early in the morning because I got to get back to put the turkey in by like noon or whatever. Otherwise we're eating really late. So I would say no. And especially like Christmas morning, there's no one there. As if you get out of there, by, if you get up, up the mountain for the first lift and then you're done by like 11, 30, 12, you're good because that's when people start showing up. So, yeah, those are the best times to go. It's first thing in the morning before the rush. It's very quiet. It's peaceful. It's just like for me, it's just like my little gift, you know, to start those holidays. It's fun. Hopefully just the first in a line of storms that will bring snow and uh, precipitation to our area. We love it. Uh, just just keep keep the snow off the roads. I don't, I'm not a fan of driving it. That's my only thing. Coming up next here on NSN Daily, 
Uh, we ought to be doing an, an updated COVID-19 athletics report. Uh, the Dodgers have it, and a past Masters champion has had to withdraw from this week's field. That's next. Wrapping things up here on NSN Daily. Um, you know, it was uh, it was crazy to see Justin Turner come out and celebrate with his teammates after being pulled from Game 7 of the World Series due to a positive COVID-19 test. And um, now the Los Angeles Dodgers have announced that nine members of the team and a family member to the positive COVID caseload down there. Chris, um, I mean, the Dodgers, he wasn't, he wasn't punished for this. I don't even know what to say about it. Well, we don't even know if he's patient zero either. I mean, maybe he got it from somebody else and was in that mix. They haven't really released MLB uh, players and names and stuff like that. I know a wife uh, of a race player got it as well. So uh, the takeaway for me is that MLB's bubble was not all that secure. And they got very lucky to get through that situation without having an outbreak during the playoffs, which definitely would have impacted a lot of things. So um, it's certainly not good to see, but MLB clearly did not do as good a job as NBA, which basically went three months without one positive test. And now you see this outbreak right toward the end of the world series and very fortunate for MLB that it did end with that game six. Cause if it goes to a game seven, then you got to uh, make a lot of hard decisions. Yeah. I misspoke. It was game six. I was hoping for a game seven. Uh, Alex, uh, just your thoughts on this when you're reading this sort of stuff. Not surprised. Uh, you know, I'm not surprised at any of this stuff. Anytime we talk about COVID on the show, it's not surprised. You know, I don't think I'm ever going to have any reaction that's different than that. I am surprised that he didn't get any kind of suspension though. And maybe there was a good reason, but I do think, you know, the way that, I, look, at the same time, I can't necessarily blame Justin Turner. Like, the guy spent his whole life working towards that, and, and he was going to get denied celebrating with his team uh, that probably already had an exposure to it. And like Chris said, like, was he even patient zero? So, you know, I think he did what he did in the comfort of his teammates. They knew what was going on. So anyone that was around him made that choice. And I think in this, like I said from the very beginning, is this is all a lot of choices that people have to make. And the people that were around him had a choice. He had a choice. You know, I have a hard time sitting here blaming Justin Turner all the way around. But at the same time, I do did find it kind of interesting that he wouldn't get any sort of punishment uh, from Major League Baseball. I think that surprised me more than, OK, now nine guys have it. You know, I think I, I think we all kind of saw that coming. One final little tidbit uh, for the show here is that uh, the official word from Augusta National is that uh, former past champion of the Masters, Sergio Garcia, has withdrawn from the field because he has tested positive for COVID-19. He missed the cut at last week's uh, Vivint Houston Open after arriving home on Saturday, had a sore throat, had a cough, tested positive. Uh, he says that he will be back and he's ranked 40th in the world. He's been playing some decent golf, but uh, he will not be replaced in the Masters field. That'll do it for us here on NSN Daily. I want to thank Eric Edelstein for stopping by the show and being candid about uh, what's going on up with 1868 and the future with the Reno Aces. For Anthony Resnick behind the scenes and Chris Murray and Alex Margulies, I'm Brian Samudia. We'll see you tomorrow.